Fifth Lecture, Part 1 of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by J. M. Kennedy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Delivered on the 23rd of March, 1872. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have lent a sympathetic ear to what I have told you about the heated argument of our philosopher in the stillness of that memorable night, you must have felt as disappointed as we did when he announced his peevish intention. You will remember that he had suddenly told us he wished to go, for, having been left in the lurch by his friend in the first place, and, in the second, having been bored rather than animated by the remarks addressed to him by his companion and ourselves when walking backwards and forwards on the hillside, he now apparently wanted to put an end to what appeared to him to be a useless discussion. It must have seemed to him that his day had been lost, and he would have liked to blot it out of his memory, together with the recollection of ever having made our acquaintance. And we were thus rather unwillingly preparing to depart when something else suddenly brought him to a standstill, and the foot he had just raised sank hesitantly to the ground again. A colored flame, making a crackling noise for a few seconds, attracted our attention from the direction of the Rhine, and immediately following upon this we heard a slow, harmonious call, quite in tune, although plainly the cry of numerous youthful voices. "'That's a signal!' exclaimed the philosopher. "'So my friend is really coming, and I haven't waited for nothing after all. It will be a midnight meeting indeed, but how am I to let him know that I am still here? Come, your pistols, let us see your talent once again. Did you hear the severe rhythm of that melody saluting us?' Mark it well, and answer it in the same rhythm by a series of shots. This was a task well suited to our tastes and abilities, so we loaded up as quickly as we could and pointed our weapons at the brilliant stars in the heaven, whilst the echo of that piercing cry died away in the distance. The reports of the first, second, and third shots sounded sharply in the stillness, and then the philosopher cried, False time! as our rhythm was suddenly interrupted, for, like a lightning flash, a shooting star tore its way across the clouds after the third report, and almost involuntarily our fourth and fifth shots were sent after in the direction it had taken. "'False time!' said the philosopher again. "'Who told you to shoot stars? They can fall well enough without you. People should know what they want before they begin to handle weapons.' And then we once more heard that loud melody from the waters of the Rhine, intoned by numerous and strong voices. They understand us, said the philosopher, laughing. And who indeed could resist when such a dazzling phantom comes within range? Hush, interrupted his friend. What sort of company can it be that returns the signal to us in such a way? I should say there were between twenty and forty strong, manly voices in that crowd. And where would such a number come from to greet us? They don't appear to have left the opposite bank of the Rhine yet. But at any rate, we must have a look at them from our own side of the river. Come along, quickly. We were then standing near the top of the hill, you may remember, and our view of the river was interrupted by a dark, thick wood. On the other hand, as I have told you, from the quiet little spot which we had left we could have a better view than from the little plateau on the hillside, and the Rhine, with the island of Nonaworth in the middle, was just visible to the beholder who peered over the treetops. We therefore set off hastily towards this little spot, taking care, however, not to go too quickly for the philosopher's comfort. The night was pitch dark, and we seemed to find our way by instinct rather than by clearly distinguishing the path, as we walked down with the philosopher in the middle. We had scarcely reached our side of the river when a broad and fiery, yet dull and uncertain light shot up, which plainly came from the opposite side of the Rhine. "'Those are torches,' I cried. 
There's nothing surer than that my comrades from Bonn are over yonder, and that your friend must be with them. It is they who sang that peculiar song, and they have doubtless accompanied your friend here. See, listen, they are putting off in little boats. The whole torchlight procession will have arrived here in less than half an hour. The philosopher jumped back. What did you say? he ejaculated. Your comrades from Bonn. Students. Can my friend have come here with students? This question, uttered almost wrathfully, provoked us. What's your objection to students? we demanded, but there was no answer. It was only after a pause that the philosopher slowly began to speak, not addressing us directly, as it were, but rather someone in the distance. So, my friend, even at midnight, even on the top of a lonely mountain, we shall not be alone, and you yourself are bringing a pack of mischief-making students along with you although you well know that I am only too glad to get out of the way of hoc genus omne. I don't quite understand you, my friend. It must mean something when we arrange to meet after a long separation at such an out-of-the-way place and at such an unusual hour. Why should we want a crowd of witnesses, and such witnesses? What calls us together today is least of all a sentimental, soft-hearted necessity, for both of us learnt early in life to live alone in dignified isolation. It was not for our own sakes, not to show our tender feelings towards each other, or to perform an unrehearsed act of friendship that we decided to meet here, but that here, where I once came suddenly upon you as you sat in majestic solitude, we might earnestly deliberate with each other like knights of a new order. Let them listen to us who can understand us. But why should you bring with you a throng of people who don't understand us? I don't know what you mean by such a thing, my friend. We did not think it proper to interrupt the dissatisfied old grumbler, and as he came to a melancholy close, we did not dare tell him how greatly this distrustful repudiation of students vexed us. At last the philosopher's companion turned to him and said, I am reminded of the fact that even you at one time, before I made your acquaintance, occupied posts in several universities, and that reports concerning your intercourse with the students and your methods of instruction at the time are still in circulation. From the tone of resignation in which you have just referred to students, many would be inclined to think that you had some peculiar experiences which were not at all to your liking. But personally, I rather believe that you saw and experienced in such places just what everyone else saw and experienced in them, but that you judged what you saw and felt more justly and severely than anyone else. For, during the time I have known you, I have learned that the most noteworthy, instructive, and decisive experiences and events in one's life are those which are of daily occurrence. That the greatest riddle, displayed in full view of all, is seen by the fewest to be the greatest riddle. And that these problems are spread about in every direction, under the very feet of the passer-by, for the few real philosophers to lift up carefully, thenceforth to shine as diamonds of wisdom. Perhaps in the short time now left us before the arrival of your friend, you will be good enough to tell us of something of your experiences of university life so as to close the circle of observations to which we were involuntarily urged respecting our educational institutions we may also be allowed to remind you that you at an earlier age of your remarks gave me the promise that you would do so starting with the public school you claimed for it an extraordinary importance all other institutions must be judged by its standard according as its aim has been proposed and if its aim happens to be wrong all the others have to suffer such an importance cannot now be adopted by the universities as a standard, for, by their present system of grouping, there would be nothing more than institutions where public school students might go through finishing courses. 
You promised me that you would explain this in greater detail later on. Perhaps our student friends can bear witness to that, if they chance to overhear that part of our conversation. We can testify to that, I put in. The philosopher then turned to us and said, Well, if you really did listen attentively, perhaps you can now tell me what you understand by the expression, the present aim of our public schools. Besides, you are still near enough to this sphere to judge my opinions by the standard of your own impressions and experiences. My friend instantly answered, quickly and smartly, as was his habit in the following words. Until now, we had always thought that the sole object of the public school was to prepare students for the universities. This preparation, however, should tend to make us independent enough for the extraordinary free position of a university student. For it seems to me that a student, to a greater extent than any other individual, has more to decide and settle for himself. He must guide himself on a wide, utterly unknown path for many years, so the public school must do its best to render him independent. I continued the argument where my friend left off. It seems to me, I said, that everything for which you have justly blamed the public school is only a necessary means employed to imbue the youthful student with some kind of independence, or at all events with the belief that there is such a thing. The teaching of German composition must be at the service of this independence. The individual must enjoy his opinions and carry out his designs early, so that he may be able to travel alone and without crutches. In this way, he will soon be encouraged to produce original work, and still sooner to take up criticism and analysis. If Latin and Greek studies prove insufficient to make a student an enthusiastic admirer of antiquity, the methods with which such studies are pursued are at all events sufficient to awaken the scientific sense, the desire for a more strict causality of knowledge, the passion for finding out and inventing. Only think how many young men may be lured away forever to the attractions of science by a new reading of some sort which they have snatched up with youthful hands at the public school. The public schoolboy must learn and collect a great deal of varied information. Hence an impulse will gradually be created, accompanied with which he will continue to learn and collect independently at the university. We believe, in short, that the aim of the public school is to prepare and accustom the student always to live and learn independently afterwards. Just as beforehand, he must live and learn dependently at the public school. The philosopher laughed, not altogether good-naturedly, and said, You have just given me a fine example of that independence, and it is this very independence that shocks me so much, and makes any place in the neighborhood of present-day students so disagreeable to me. Yes, my good friends, you are perfect, you are mature. Nature has cast you and broken up the molds, and your teachers must surely gloat over you. What liberty, certitude, and independence of judgment. What novelty and freshness of insight. You sit in judgment, and the cultures of all ages run away. The scientific sense is kindled and rises out of you like a flame. Let people be careful, lest you set them alight. If I go further into the question and look at your professors, I again find the same independence in a greater and even more charming degree. Never was there a time so full of the most sublime independent folk. Never was slavery more detested, the slavery of education and culture included. Permit me, however, to measure this independence of yours by the standard of this culture, and to consider your university as an educational institution and nothing else. If a foreigner desires to know something of the methods of our universities, he asks first of all with emphasis, How is the student connected with the university? We answer, by the ear as a hearer. The foreigner is astonished. 
Only by the ear, he repeats. Only by the ear, again we reply. The student hears. When he speaks, when he sees, when he is in the company of his companions, when he takes up some branch of art, in short, when he lives, he is independent, i.e., not dependent upon the educational institution. The student very often writes down something while he hears, and it is only at these rare moments that he hangs to the umbilical cord of his alma mater. He himself may choose what he is to listen to. He is not bound to believe what is said. He may close his ears if he does not care to hear. This is the acromatic method of teaching. The teacher, however, speaks to these listening students. Whatever else he may think and do is cut off from the student's perception by an immense gap. The professor often reads when he is speaking. As a rule, he wishes to have as many hearers as possible. He is not content to have a few, and he is never satisfied with only one. One speaking mouth, with many ears, and half as many writing hands. There you have, to all appearances, the external academic apparatus, the university engine of culture set in motion. Moreover, the proprietor of this one mouth is severed from and independent of the owners of the many ears. And this double independence is enthusiastically designated as academic freedom. And again, that this freedom may be broadened still more, the one may speak what he likes and the other may hear what he likes, except that, behind both of them, at a modest distance, stands the state, with all the intentness of a supervisor, to remind the professors and students from time to time that it is the aim, the goal, the be-all and end-all of this curious speaking and hearing procedure. We, who must be permitted to regard this phenomenon merely as an educational institution, will then inform the inquiring foreigner that what is called culture in our universities merely proceeds from the mouth to the ear, and that every kind of training for culture is, as I said before, merely acromatic. Since, however, not only the hearing, but also the choice of what to hear is left to the independent decision of the liberal-minded and unprejudiced student, and since, again, he can withhold all belief and authority from what he hears, all training for culture, in the true sense of the term, reverts to himself, and the independence it was thought desirable to aim at in the public school now presents itself with the highest possible pride as academical self-training for culture, and struts about in its brilliant plumage. Happy times when youths are clever and cultured enough to teach themselves how to walk. Unsurpassable public schools, which succeed in implanting independence in the place of the dependence, discipline, subordination, and obedience implanted by former generations that thought it their duty to drive away all the bumptuousness of independence. Do you clearly see, my good friends, why I, from the standpoint of culture, regard the present type of university as a mere appendage to the public school? The culture instilled by the public school passes through the gates of the university as something ready and entire, and with its own particular claims. It demands, it gives laws, it sits in judgment. Do not, then, let yourselves be deceived in regard to the cultured student. For he, in so far as he thinks he has absorbed the blessings of education, is merely the public schoolboy as molded by the hands of his teacher. One who, since his academical isolation, and after he has left the public school, has therefore been deprived of all further guidance to culture, that from now on he may begin to live by himself and be free. Free! Examine this freedom, yea, observers of human nature. 
erected upon the sandy, crumbling foundation of our present public school culture. Its building slants to one side, trembling before the whirlwind's blast. Look at the free student, the herald of self-culture. Guess what his instincts are. Explain him from his needs. How does his culture appear to you when you measure it by three graduated scales? First, by his need for philosophy. Second, by his instinct for art. And third, by Greek and Roman antiquity as the incarnate categorical imperative of all culture. Man is so much encompassed about the most serious and difficult problems that, when they are brought to his attention in the right way, he is impelled betimes towards a lasting kind of philosophical wonder, from which alone, as a fruitful soil, a deep and noble culture can grow forth. His own experiences lead him most frequently to the consideration of these problems, and it is especially in the temptuous period of youth that every personal event shines with a double gleam, both as the exemplification of a triviality and, at the same time, of an eternal surprising problem deserving of explanation. At this age, which, as it were, sees his experiences encircled with metaphysical rainbows, man is, in the highest degree, in need of a guiding hand, because he has suddenly and almost instinctively convinced himself of the ambiguity of existence, and has lost the firm support of the beliefs he has hitherto held. This natural state of great need must of course be looked upon as the worst enemy of that beloved independence for which the cultured youth of the present day should be trained. All these sons of the present, who have raised the banner of the self-understood, are therefore straining every nerve to crush down these feelings of youth, to cripple them, to mislead them, or to stop their growth altogether. And the favorite means employed is to paralyze that natural philosophic impulse by the so-called historical culture. A still recent system, which has won for itself a worldwide scandalous reputation, has discovered the formula for the self-destruction of philosophy. And now, wherever the historical view of things is found, we can see such a naive recklessness in bringing the irrational to rationality and reason and making black look like white, that one is even inclined to parody Hegel's phrase and ask, Is all this irrationality real? Ah, it is only the irrational that now seems to be real, i.e., really doing something. And to bring this kind of reality forward for the elucidation of history is reckoned as the true historical culture. It is into this that the philosophical impulse of our time has pupated itself, and the peculiar philosophers of our university seem to have conspired to fortify and confirm the young academicians into it. End of Fifth Lecture, Part 1